The world is at a pivotal moment. Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership. Industries are being reshaped. Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy, our security, and, and our, our daily, daily lives. lives. This, this is, is Geotech Wars. Wars. Welcome back, everybody. Today, Andrew and I are joined by Nirav Patel, who is the CEO and co-founder of the Asia Group, which is a business advisory firm with offices across Asia that advises companies on how to do business in Asia while managing geopolitical risk. He also served in the State Department in a couple of capacities in the past, including as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. And Nilav is also a serial entrepreneur who has founded and invested in and sold numerous companies across the UK, North America, and Asia. And Nilav, I have to point this out that uh, a couple of decades ago, you've also had a stint at our very own CSIS. So welcome back to Home Turf. Thank you very much. I think the uh, technology at that point in time was a little different from today. I don't think there was uh, video <laughs> conferences, Zooms, and I'm pretty confident that uh, at that point we were all sharing one computer amongst a cadre of interns trying to figure out how quickly we could do our research assignment before someone else needed the hot desk. So it's great. And I love the new CSIS building. And it's an institution that means so much to me. And I assume countless others who've had the chance of really going through the rigors of, you know, really, you know, fabled institution and the ability for us to, you know, try to give back over time ends up becoming probably one of the stronger drives of what makes CSIS such an important institution in DC. It's a two-way street. So Nirav, that's so nice of you to say. And I joined CSIS a couple of years after you left. And when I joined to do media relations, we couldn't even send out a press release. <laughs> <laughs> so much less to a podcast. There were no podcasts back then. There weren't even iPhones back then. There was a VHS player, I remember, in uh, the old CSIS building that was uh, used for training. And I remember my first HR training video was uh, literally a VHS that was put in and someone had to rewind it right to the exact moment in time when no, we could start. But obviously, we've come full circle in a lot of different ways. And it's a pleasure to uh, be with both you and Kirthi for this conversation. Well, so I want to kick it off, you know, along the lines of what Kirti was saying, I want to talk to both of you about the U.S. policy approach towards national security and geoeconomics. They've, they're increasingly intertwined. So, you know, the first question I want to tee up for both of you is just that, how do you view the current approach of U.S. policymakers towards national security and geoeconomics? Look, I'll start off with this. And, and I think that, you know, I would argue for the first time in decades, the role of government and policy and business is far more intertwined. And, you know, one data point I look at in terms of the, you know, businesses that we work with, for the better part of the first seven, eight years of our business, a lot of the dialogue we would have really would um, relate to people in the corporate risk function of business, not necessarily viewing policy as a enabling function in terms of how you create business opportunities, but really kind of a, a small little aspect of what a business thinks about always kind of viewed as a cost center, not anything more than that. 
in the last two to three years, what we've seen is a whole scale shift in that approach where C-suite executives are materially attuned to the role of geopolitics. And it's not just what's happening at a 30,000 foot level. As you all know, at CSIS, it's really understanding that at a sectoral basis, policy developments and policy trends that are occurring in a market, smart companies know how to not only shape those, but they know how to use those in terms of driving opportunities. So I would argue that we've really entered a period of time where the role of public policy and geopolitics is fundamentally intertwined with corporate strategy. And if you're a global multinational, a US multinational that has a significant amount of exposure in technology, for example, including both hardware and software, you really are at a period of time where you can't just sit back and observe those geopolitical features, but rather you have to be an active participant, both in terms of analysis associated with what's going on, be a keen observer of key forums and participate in those in a means that really drive your interests in as a business, but also being able to respond to those changes in a way that create interesting opportunities. And, and I will say that I was at a conference in Singapore last week at an investor forum for venture capitalists, and a participant made a very interesting point. He said that pessimists sound smart and optimists make. And I would argue that that's really the feature of how geopolitics factor in borderrooms at this point in time, which is don't just be a pessimist, but rather end up articulating how these various policy trends actually drive opportunity, which I think ends up becoming a point of differentiation for companies that will be successful in this uh, current period of time. Well, you know, sometimes it's hard to be optimistic when you think about U.S. government and U.S. policymakers, but in the areas we're talking, there actually is some bipartisan agreement and collaboration, isn't there? I, th I think there is. And, you know, as, as you all know well at CSIS, the thing that often happens at the outset of any new development, whether it's based on commerce or it's based on new changes in how warfare is conducted, government normally hits with a hammer at the outset. And, and then as a result, hitting with a hammer, you see a lot of displacement, a lot of collateral damage. You start figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And arguably, when the technology competition debates and discussions with China really became forefront of how the United States was conceptualizing its broader China strategy, I think it really was using a hammer. And now we are increasingly seeing nuance drive discussion. And we're seeing policy take a much more serious bent in terms of thinking through how to create topical limits as opposed to going across the board and say, all technology to China is evil. And now we're obviously seeing constructs like small yard, big fence that start to create certain sectoral conditions for the type of investments, joint venture partnership, sales distribution agreements, et cetera, that US businesses in particular need to have. And I share the point that you make, Andrew, which is there does seem to be a lot more bipartisan sentiment associated with this approach. Obviously, there is a lot of different competing interest groups in terms of how do you shape some of the legislation and shape some of the policy. But net net, the directional indicators seem pretty clear to me at this point in time. And that has been the theme of our conversations in our podcast over some time now, too, Nirav, that this vacation from history that we had over the last 30, 40, maybe more years is now over. And corporations have to and are uh, beginning to engage more with the government. I, I would just underline that, you know, from the experience of the semiconductor industry, you've seen this too with your role in the Asia group. We weren't all quite prepared for what came our way in the industry 
quite rapidly, as you said, in the last two to three years to, you know, adapt to the changing winds and diversify, re-diversify our supply chains. We are still in the middle of it and really have a meaningful public-private partnership with the government on understanding the geopolitical risks and engaging in a meaningful way. So I think that the trend has just begun, isn't it? We are in early stages. I, look, I think that's right. I think we are in the, you know, maybe the, the first inning still, to be honest. And I think it's going to be a very long process before um, government and companies end up being able to effectively create a landing zone for what is going to be viewed as permissible activity within the contours of a national security framework that is in many instances governing future of commerce, particularly vis-a-vis China. And I think the U.S. Secretary of Treasury really articulated this in a speech she gave a number of months ago where she literally said that, you know, national security will trump economic interests and values end up, you know, trumping those economic interests in a way that I don't think, a, you know, a, a treasury official has said other than when we are, you know, utilizing sanctions against Russia for uh, its war in Ukraine, et cetera. So I do think we're in the beginning phases. And I also think that we will likely start to see an acceleration of the type of corporate behavior that you note where, you move away principally from analysis and internal corporate strategy to actual implementation. And then you see real CapEx flows moving into you know trusted geographies, if you will, like India and Vietnam. And I think we really are still at the beginning phases of those conversations translating into active capital deployment that end up actually reconstituting the supply chains in a way that end up becoming more consistent with national security interests. So that's really noteworthy that the you know Treasury Secretary saying that national security interests are taking such a high priority that they are sometimes above the economic efficiency or economic interests, and that that is the change I think we're all grappling with. I want to ask both of you along these lines: How has geopolitical risk for companies evolved over the last couple of decades? I think it goes, Andrew, from a you know, I, I shouldn't say a third or fourth order priority, but I think it goes from, you know, a lower priority to a, you know, center point in terms of what multinational corporations are dealing with. And I think it's important as at CSIS, you all know and do well, which is to create some degree of analytic differentiation between the big macro geopolitical trends and then the overall policy environment that occurs as a result of those geopolitical trends that actually have an intersection with the business and operating environment, right? So at a 30,000 foot level, you can say the US and China are entered into a era of strategic competition. And then what does that mean if you produce insulated coffee cups in China, if you're a US company? Not much, right? At the end of the day, your coffee cups are not you know, the enabling mechanism for a hypersonic missile. So I think what we're observing more and more is that smart companies are really thinking harder about the sectoral policy trends that are in many ways based on these broader 30,000 foot geopolitical developments and that how that starts factoring into the operating environment ends up becoming both a challenge because those trends are also equally moving at a fast basis as well as an opportunity because smart businesses should be able to adapt and evolve. And in a context like China, just as we pointed out, you know, that Kirthi pointed out, those developments that we observed two to three years ago that were occurring at a very fast pace in terms of a fundamental transformation in the US-China relationship, policy is now moving in that same speed to react to those changes at a national basis in China as well. So it's not just a US phenomena, and both of those are creating very significant tectonic shifts in how corporations have not only structured their investments in China, 
how they've made decisions about where they manufacture, the overall extent of their supply and sales networks and market, and also how they utilize China as a strategic hub in terms of entry into other markets across the Asia Pacific region. So in many instances, it does fit within that context of we're not only in the first inning, but the actual practical manifestations of 30,000 to 10,000 to 5,000 are playing out in real time. And they're quite dynamic based on political as well as policy interests. Let's talk a little bit about collateral damage here. How have companies actually been impacted by recent policies from both the US and China? The venture capital industry for the better part of the last two and a half decades has been a very consistent adherent and observer to the US-China relationship. So during periods of time where we as a government were very focused on engagement as a means to facilitate greater economic integration for the hope, as we all know, that that economic integration would change negative behaviors and we would be able to work more collectively with China to deal with global issues, that that paradigm was really the paradigm that drove a lot of venture capital investments into China. There was no legal prohibitions of it. There was no national security discussions associated with it. And honestly, what we've seen in the past two years is a concerted effort both by the executive branch as well as Congress to say, hey, we have concerns about the direction of U.S. capital, that's smart capital, into China's technology ecosystem because we view that the further development of China's ecosystem, the accretion in terms of its intellectual property that is really enabled through U.S. know-how could present technological competitive risks to the United States and therefore, of course, be utilized in all sorts of dual use technologies that would be problematic. So I do believe that that is one area where you've seen a practical effect. And the way that practical effect has played out is some of the largest and most storied venture capital funds have legitimately broken their corporate architecture. They've not only spun off, but they've done it based on a reaction to policy trends. And arguably, those that have come out at the beginning of this will likely fare better as opposed to those who wait a little too long, who then face a lot more political scrutiny and other areas of concern that regulators in the US will have about the deployment of US capital into certain strategic sectors in China. So Neelab, I've seen some of the data with macroeconomic numbers on the trend that you just described, You know, the reduction in the VC funding or the foreign direct investment flow into China. Estimates are plenty out there. What, can you talk a little bit about, about the effect you actually see on the ground? Yeah, look, I think you, you see a few things. One, you do see venture capitalists uh, really pulling back in terms of their exposure on China and thinking much more ex-China. And you see them thinking about trusted geographies because they understand that these are markets that have alignment with the United States. And because they have alignment with the United States, for example, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, maybe to a lesser extent, that it ends up creating a risk mitigation against different policy trends that may result in tariffs, may result in enforcement investigations by Department of Commerce's BIS, it may result in political scrutiny from the US-China Committee. And because they want to avoid not only those headaches, but also some of the practical risks associated with those inquiries, they're really beginning to shift to identify where they can not only allocate and deploy capital, but also where they see markets that have strong alignment with the United States geopolitically, and that obviously, as you know well, Kirthi, create the right storm in terms of being able to really see escape velocity for homegrown technology companies that really factor into a demographic bulge of the middle class, both throughout Southeast Asia as well as India. So 
I do think that you start to see more capital deployment. And if you look at the number of venture capital and private equity funds that are opening offices in Mumbai, as well as in Ho Chi Minh City, and you know, really thinking more strategically about Southeast Asia, I think we're really at the beginning phases of that directional shift into where they see opportunity that once again is correlated and aligned with U.S. national security trends. But it doesn't mean that business is somehow going to just kowtow to that, right? There's going to be challenges. There's going to be ways to push back based on what people to be believe to be either you know incomplete policy, policies that perhaps have an overreach that will be tested and contested in the courts, et cetera. So I don't want to paint a picture that business is somehow just saying no more. It's rather they're attuned to policy and political risk. Some of them are making decisions to not have to deal with those headaches, whereas others will probably continue to push because they see significant market opportunity in China, at least for the short term, like you know that we define as being the three to seven year window to continue to drive profit and drive opportunity in the China market. What comes after that is no one's guess. In fact, I've seen these, like, uh, let's talk about a couple of data points here, right? There are, as you said, with these trends, uh, certain countries that are winners and losers in sort of this new era of reimagining globalization. Vietnam has become an important link in the supply chain as businesses pivot from China, right? They've received recently $22.4 billion from foreign direct investment projects in 2022. That's a 13.5% increase over the period last year, same period last year. India has seen a lot of new manufacturing operations spring up recently, including including, of course, you know, Foxconn's factories and so on for mobile phone manufacturing, my industry. But it's expected that, you know, for example, Walmart said in 2020, it plans to triple its exports from India to 10 billion by 2027. So with all those things happening, it's still not clear how much resiliency we are actually ultimately building. You know, there are some reports out there that talk about, you know, while there have been trade rules that have been reworked, and trade routes that are being rerouted, there's still an ultimate dependence on China at the end of the supply chain. Does that does that resonate with you? And how likely are we to build as much resiliency or less dependence as I think our government's hopes for right now? How, how likely are we to get there and how fast? Well, look, I think it's a really, you know, hard question to answer because so much of this is playing out in real time. I think that my instinct, at least in terms of observing these trends, is that it's going to be very, very difficult, if not improbable, to displace the role of China in the supply chain for the hardware side of technology. And I think that there are going to be some sectors that you can really deleverage dramatically, and but that deleverage will take a decade at least just because the raw mechanics of actually opening a fab, right? And if we just look at those, you know, you start to understand that we're really dealing not with a issue that can be addressed within a one to two year period of time, but you're really dealing with issues that take longer. As we've seen with the CIMIC chip development that really caught a lot of folks off of guard about a month ago, we're also dealing with perhaps the limitations of a US export control policy that may be based on an imperfect understanding of how sophisticated maybe China's own semiconductor industrial base is at being able to develop more advanced semiconductor chips that are well below that 14 nanometer spread that a lot of decision makers in Washington talk about. But I think the other example 
is that if we look at the announcement that Apple made in India, for example, right, it's clear that for this to be viable for Apple, it needs to bring along a big chunk of the OEMs that it's working with in China in order to actually have the system efficiency of what they need to be able to produce iPhones in the Indian market. And that's a story that I don't think has gotten as much attention, which is it's an Indian government that, as you know very well, is quite austere in its regulations and policies vis-a-vis China. You see this in terms of bans of video games in app stores in India that honestly have very little exposure in terms of direct Chinese involvement. Maybe minority investors from China are on the cap table, but those games are banned from being allowed in India. But on the other end of the spectrum, you see an Indian government that's pragmatic because it wants to be able to drive value-add manufacturing consumer electronics into India. But in order to accomplish that, it also has to give waivers and exemptions for Chinese OEMs that Apple is working with so that it can actually replicate a small part of its overall ecosystem in China into India. Vietnam, I'd be interested in, as you break down those numbers, how much of that FDI is actually coming from China, right? We know that Chinese companies are very, very attuned to geopolitics, market dynamics. And in my sense, from talking to our team in Hanoi, is that a lot of the new manufacturing capacity and industrial zones that are coming online in Vietnam are really Chinese businesses and Chinese SMEs that understand that their customers are wanting to see more manufacturing taking place in a market like Vietnam. So they don't want to lose the business, right? They want to be able to take advantage of new different changes. They understand their labor rates in China are high. They can go to Vietnam and also get the same labor arbitrage that global businesses have. So I think it's important to recognize that there's just a lot of different points of tension and contradiction that will make it very difficult to actually excise China out of the supply chain in some very unique subsectors in technology. I assume that will happen. But overall, it seems very difficult, at least in the next seven to 10 years, to assume that there's going to be a dominant market that can actually replace what China does. Rather, it's more of a complement that just de-risks it a bit so that folks have a degree of comfort in the event where something quite negative to happen, that there is some latent capacity in a trusted geography that folks can turn to, to offset whatever distortion would occur in an event of a crisis in the US-China relationship. But it's a TBD you know, answer. So, you know, this is fascinating. Against this backdrop, how are companies managing these humongous geopolitical risks today? You know, I think the companies that we work with, um, I think, are becoming much more attuned to how geopolitics is affecting their business operations and are undertaking complex scenario planning exercises to be able to assess the impact, not on the you know China invades Taiwan scenario, which people would assume to be a low probability event, but really looking at a number of other trigger points that generate crises, that generate challenges, whether it's new laws passed in China, new laws passed in the United States that create a tit-for-tat response. And in doing so, create real challenges for businesses. So I think the first area that we're seeing a lot more of, Andrew, in addition to just a significant consumption of information and insight, which I think is very distinct from where we were even three years ago, is really moving in the direction of saying, okay, with the knowledge of that, how do we topically align that analysis in a way that creates scenarios that our supply chain management team can actually seek its teeth into that then allow us to start thinking more about resiliency. And then once they start figuring out resiliency to Kirthi's question, they start thinking about diversification, right? But I don't think that 
diversification happens until there is a better understanding of resiliency that's already built into a business's overall architecture. And then they start moving in that direction. So I think that's bucket one and bucket two. Bucket three is really the point that you know I think you all started off with, which is in this period of significant amount of geoeconomic uh, you know, transformation, the smart businesses have begun to think hard about where they want to position themselves for the future. And I'm still of the view that India has the most to lose in this moment, right? And and I'm not one to give India the the you know crown for the future. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be done. It seems like a government that is in action that seems capable, focused, and up to the task of actually being a victor based on the type of geoeconomic transformations underway. But most of the boardroom conversations that we're participants in, large global businesses that have tremendous amount of exposure in China, it is a natural focus point because you have a massive demographic opportunity in India, right? You have infrastructure that is building out at a very rapid base. And for the first time, you have a degree of political stability that hopefully augurs well for the type of regulatory consistency and policy framework that global businesses need to see. And the credit in that instance does go to China because for the better part of the pre-Xi Jinping era, there's been a degree of quite significant policy continuity and stability that has been very enabling for U.S. business, right? And I think that's where you see smart business making certain decisions. But also the reality is, is when I see CEOs engaged on political risk and geopolitical risk, for me, it's a company to bet on. Those that still kind of relegated to, you know, we'll let our government affairs function deal with it or a general counsel function deal with it. I think those are the ones, if they have exposure in China, significant interest in Asia, those are the ones that are likely unable to actually seize new opportunities going forward and probably face some real significant policy headwinds that they're not thinking through enough. So when you talk about diversification, what does it actually mean when the U.S. is de-risking, quote unquote, de-risking from China? What does that mean? You know, look, I think in a policy sense, it means exactly what we think it means, which is less place, less emphasis on China as a destination and source for a range of product. Practical sense, as I think the question alludes to, it's a very difficult thing to actually accomplish because there's a very few number of markets in the world that have a manufacturing ecosystem in particular that can replicate what China does and certainly not the scale of what China can do. So I think de-risking, the way I look at it is it, it gets very specific to the sector, right? Your insulated coffee cup, you don't really need to de-risk unless you have concerns about tariffs. And that has probably already driven you to manufacture in other economies that are going to be relatively safe in terms of not being subject to US-China tariffs, right? In the technology stack, once again, if you're making a pressure cooker for you know home-cooked rice that uses AI, right, which they exist, that's not something you necessarily need to deep risk out of, right? Because that's a technology that's low grade, but there's generally speaking, not a national security correlation. So I think where this de-risking paradigm goes over time is it really starts to get into a much more definitional precision about what are the type of technologies, what are the applications associated with those technologies that there needs to be a lot more concern on. And that's where I think you start seeing a lot of the guardrails that my sense is will only come forward as policymakers get deeper and more sophisticated on these issues, which honestly, for those people who think government is relatively speaking, monolithically dumb, I feel like that's a very, very dangerous proposition because as both of you know, living and breathing Washington, there is a lot of of talent and sophistication that the government will pull from. And, And once the government starts being able to figure out 
what those pools of talent look like, how they figure out onboarding those, then the reality is, is that government will get smart and it'll get smart quickly and it'll be able to develop policies that probably get to the heart of, of how you do risk in a specific subsects of the technology sector. Here, can you look like you want to jump in on this? I think the theme that is emerging from all of this is companies that are ahead of the curve in engaging with the government on a meaningful public-private partnership are in a far better position to de-risk their operations strategically over a period of time. And I want to also draw from the example of the semiconductor industry because for better or for worse, it has been at the tip of the spear of these uh, geopolitical changes that have you know caught us all in the last two to three years, as you're describing Nirav. So as we know, we've had a series of export controls and FDI, foreign direct investment screening measures that have been targeted to limit tech transfer from the US and other allied nations to China for high-end cutting-edge semiconductor technology. Now that was led to, you know, semiconductor companies understanding and try to de-risk some of their supply chains. And as Nirav has explained, you know, in particular for this kind of industry where fabs and foundries are tough to build, it's an eight to 10 year process. <laughs> it doesn't move that fast. So policies have to take into account the extremely sophisticated realities of a highly complex industry. And there have been some consequences to the industry in the meantime that I just want to read about a little bit. And I want to, you know, hear your Andrew and Nita's take on this. You know, NVIDIA, for example, a couple of months ago, again, issued a warning that further U.S. export curbs on its chips to China would risk a permanent loss of American semiconductor firms to lead in one of the largest markets. And Micron, which is a US-based company that is a leader in memory chips, also you know, said a few months ago that a ban on selling chips to, you know, large markets lead to a direct cut in its revenues. And again, all of this is important because it ties to ultimately, frankly, the goal of the U.S. government, which is to maintain technology leadership for what? For the purposes of national security. So this balancing act, how do we do this? How do we make sure that, you know, companies get enough time to diversify their operations while they're able to sustain these shocks and losses that are, quite frankly, <laughs> sort of hurled on them sometimes unexpectedly or sometimes exogenously, like, you know, they're like external shocks to the system while maintaining some of the broader government objectives is, is really difficult. I, I think that's probably the concern that most technology businesses currently have, which is that the revenue associated with their position in China ends up becoming essential to the type of R&D evolutions that have enabled U.S. technological competitiveness for decades at this point in time. And that by excising that, you obviously lose a very significant stream of revenue. I assume that parts of the CHIPS Act and other areas that the U.S. government is thinking about are finding ways to incentivize that, right? And I heard this great uh, quote on an interview last week that Steve Case gave, which you know, for those of us in D.C., Steve Case is an important part of our own local architecture. And he said, policy in place will guide the future of how technology and investments play out over time. And I found that to be very interesting because if you're any of the companies you mentioned, right, you're both subject to policy, right? And you're also subject to place. And, and I think that what Secretary Yellen has said, what the National Security Advisor has said, I just don't think there's a lot of sympathy for it. 
and it's unfortunate. And it's better to live in the reality of accepting that versus trying to keep hitting your head against a brick wall. And the smart businesses we work with get that. And as a result, they're buying as much time as they possibly can in order to extract as much revenue and profit from their current operations in China, but are beginning to position themselves quite quickly to identify where they're going to be in the future because they know it, they get it, and they just can't assume that they have the ability to counter what is a non-market-oriented approach. It's driven by national security. And you know the balance in the US government, I think in the past, was really driven a lot by economic considerations, particularly after the GFC in 08, right, where the economic agencies ended up becoming extremely influential in our decision-making processes in terms of global affairs, et cetera. And I think at this point in time, we've really pivoted back to almost a post-9-11 environment. But in this instance, obviously, the center of gravity is China, not the Middle East in terms of how national security decision-making starts influencing businesses. But I just don't think you can afford to stick your head in the sand, pretend this all goes away. I think you just have to take it head on and accept these realities and start figuring out where you pivot in order to identify growth opportunities over time. And policy in place are probably going to be in the simplistic way, the two peaks that end up defining your future. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say all this Nero is, you know, obvious it's obvious that you're working with a range of companies across the spectrum of those who get it and are able to change their operations or make engagement with the government a priority and responding to geopolitical risks and those who are still sort of resisting or trying to survive, frankly, this uh, coming change. Just real quick, you know, I like semiconductors has taken so much energy and air and focus. Obviously, there are other industries that are faced by similar changes or are likely to be faced by similar challenges. Where do you see what are the leading ones in your purview? Look, I think the biotechnology sector is increasingly finding skeptics and critics in the U.S. government about the nature and extent of technology transfer to China. It's a harder one because, as you know well, a lot of clinical trials are still funded and executed in China. Uh, there's a huge market, as you know well, for a range of pharmacological products uh, that are developed in the United States, manufactured in China, and also vice versa. There's a number of you know API and other inputs that come from China where U.S. pharmacological businesses are dependent on. And I think increasingly that dependency has started to raise real concerns from a health slash national security perspective. So I think it's possible that you see a bit more scrutiny there. But you know what I look at when I think about these conversations and really harkens back to 20 years ago when I started at CSIS, where there's this project called Beyond Goldwater Nichols, which was really a how do you think about this post Goldwater Nichols moment and the type of reforms that needed to really be, uh, you know, not only reviewed but thought through in terms of a post 9/11 environment? And in many ways, we're probably at the cusp of kind of a technology service core in the U.S. government and really thinking hard about the type of people that the U.S. government trains. And just like you have foreign service officers over time, you know, it's possible that what the U.S. government is going to have to do is to create technology service officers that play a very integral role in terms of how the government attempts to influence and impact the type of public policy that it wants to be able to develop in terms of what it is trying to accomplish, which is a de-risking in the U.S.-China relationship, but simultaneously identifying new areas of opportunity. So 
going forward, I think it'd be an interesting project on how the US government starts to actually onboard more tech talent, tech talent that has manufacturing, engineering capacity, and that can plug and play across embassies and the US government. And then how do you actually start incentivizing and creating a new cadre of foreign service officers if that's the course you want to take or commercial service officers that have that discipline. And, you know, I have my bets that CSIS can really drive that debate discussion and hopefully also train a lot of those folks that uh, end up, uh, you know, taking on those positions of influence. I sure hope so too. Nirav, thank you so much for your time today. And Kirti, thank you for your time. This has been a fascinating discussion and really one of our very best podcasts. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Kirti, for the opportunity. Thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars. You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time.